Hello, I'm Ben Horton, and welcome back to Career at the Crossroads, a Chatham House mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Over the course of five episodes, all published this week, John Nilsson Wright, a Career Foundation Fellow in the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House, will explore the strategic relations of Korea, asking how the country is seeking to protect its interests in an increasingly contested Pacific region. In this, the second episode, John is joined once more by Jennifer Lind from episode one to interview Wee Sung Lak, a retired Korea diplomat with several decades experience of Korean foreign affairs, including postings in Washington DC and Moscow. They discuss the threats facing South Korean interests in Northeast Asia, and how the current administration is projecting its stance through key alliances. I hope you enjoy listening. Well, welcome everybody. My name is John Nelson Wright, and I'm delighted to be here together with Professor Jennifer Lind and Ambassador Wee Sung Lak, part of our Career at the Crossroads podcast, looking at Korea's relationship to its neighbours and the broader international relations of Northeast Asia. This is obviously a very tense moment in regional affairs. We have the challenge of a rising China, the perennial security threat posed by the DPRK, but it's also a time when we are seeing a great deal of change. On the back of the election of Joe Biden as President of the United States, we've seen real efforts by the Biden administration to reinforce the importance of alliance relations. And we saw that, of course, with Secretary of State Blinken's visit to the region a few weeks ago. And of course, it's therefore very timely to think about how best Korea interacts with its most important partner, the United States, but also works with other liberal-minded democracies in the region, most obviously Japan, another important alliance partner of the United States. So I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about I'd like to begin, if I may, by sort of asking you, Ambassador, about your views of the new administration in the United States. The Biden team has talked a lot about what they call an inflection point, a point of change. And obviously, from America's perspective, it's easy to see why the Democrats would want to do that, to distinguish themselves from the outgoing Trump administration. But I wonder, from your vantage point in Seoul, whether it feels as significant a change as it appears to be in the eyes of the United States and its senior officials? Or is there more continuity? I'd just like to sort of start perhaps by asking you to reflect a little bit on that question of change. From my point of view, I would say that the situation has now reached a really inflection point. I think it means that Korea can no longer stand in an ambiguous position between the United States and China. It also explains why Japan has definitely tilted over to the U.S. policy of China checking and diminishing the hope of cooperation with China. In the same context, the current situation calls for Korea and Japan to raise the level of cooperation they have now. The U.S. is trying hard for such work as it strengthens the trilateral coordination mechanism among Seoul, Washington, and Tokyo. 
although the objective situation is like this, the atmosphere in Seoul is not yet up to this perception. I think um, Seoul is still in the midst of the inertia of strategic ambiguity between the United States and China. There's also little awareness of the need to improve bilateral relationship between Seoul and Tokyo as well. Such inertia in Korea could be a problem between Seoul and Washington. That's my take. Can I ask you, Ambassador Wei, can you give us a sense of what the South Korean people are feeling? You have a very vibrant democracy, and we're talking about a shift away from a a policy of pursuing very good economic relations, very good political relations with China, and and also, of course, having an alliance with the United States, as well as a multidimensional relationship with the United States. So moving, as you say, moving in one direction or another would require a bit of a national conversation, would require some national thought on the part of the not only the South Korean government, but the South Korean people about obviously the some of the costs and risks of changing the policy. So I wonder if you can give us a sense of where is the support among the South Korean people for this? What are the South Korean people thinking as these big trends in international politics are unfolding before them? Unfortunately, there haven't been any such nationwide effort to bring consensus on the future course of Korean diplomacy in the era of American-Chinese competition. Korea has been um, established diplomatic ties with Beijing for 30 years, almost 30 years. In those periods, we didn't have any concrete uh, China policy. That situation continues up to this point. As a result, Korea has taken an ambiguous position amid the rivalry between the two giants. The U.S. and China has been trying to pull Korea on their side. Korea sided with the U.S. or China on a case-by-case basis. As a result, the U.S. has grown dissatisfied with the behavior of an ally, South Korea. On the other hand, China has raised expectations that it can pull Korea further. The uh, third episode, you know, the uh, anti-missile system third episode is a graphic example of this phenomenon. Now that the U.S.-China competition has become an overall and overwhelming external environment, it is becoming more and more difficult for Korea to continue this ambiguous behavior. It's highly likely that Korea will be further swayed by the U.S. and China. But still, still, we do not have any serious discussions over this issue. So the previous inertia continues, and it may continue for the time being. That's pretty much problematic, but that's the reality we have. Up until now, there have been, broadly speaking, three arguments. Number one, being Korea as an ally of the United States should take side with the U.S. That's one school of argument. And another school is that China is rising and probably China will be overwhelming. So it's better for Korea to take side with China. That's the second school of argument. 
The last school of argument is that it's better for us to wait and see and take maximum interest in between these two countries. Since the government and the whole society didn't take any serious consideration and didn't take any decisions, the result is kind of strategic ambiguity. That's where we are. I think it's pretty counterproductive, but that's the reality. Ambassador, if I could sort of follow up on that issue of strategic ambiguity and also come back to Jennifer's point about public opinion, you make a very strong case for explaining why, if you're a rational decision maker, whether you're a politician or a civil servant, looking at the dilemma, if you like, of how to balance relations with Washington and Beijing, there are good practical reasons, economic convergence, the size of the Chinese market, geographical proximity, the importance of China in terms of delivering, if it's possible, progress on talks with the DPRK. All of those things make sense. And yet, we seem to be at a point, both regionally and globally, where there is a great deal of anxiety about China and a perception that China is both an opportunity but also a very real challenge in a whole range of different areas. For many other countries, it's the presence of China in the South China Seas, growing military capacity, You mentioned the THAAD debate. So much of THAAD is bound up with discussions about North Korea, but it's also sometimes argued that THAAD is there in part to guard against China's own ballistic missile challenge to the United States as an alliance partner of South Korea, and maybe even also to think in terms of China as a direct security threat to South Korea. For ordinary Koreans, is there A, a sense that that threat really is credible or matters, And B, when it comes to the emotional pull of China and the United States, where do ordinary Koreans feel their loyalty lies? So maybe that's too emotive a way of putting it, but where where they naturally see themselves as aligning temperamentally? Because we hear so much about the importance of the linchpin that the Korea-US relationship Mm -hmm. represents, and there's a lot of emotion bound up in this. Where would you say that that idea sits with ordinary Korean people? We're in the run-up to an election in South Korea. Uh, next March, we'll see the presidential contest. There's a, maybe the balance is shifting from the Democrats to the opposition Conservative Party. Does the kind of political dynamics have any impact on these choices about the dilemma between the US and China and this emotional element that I mentioned earlier? Of course, the political dynamics have certain impact on the public opinion. The Fad saga has definite impact on the public opinion. In the wake of Fad tit for tat, public opinion has shifted toward a somewhat anti-Chinese direction. And on top of that, these days, particularly in the last period of the current administration in Seoul, progressive public opinion gives some way to the conservative surge that was reflected in the the latest uh, local elections. So thought impact and the uh, change of political map a little bit, these two things combined and help promote a bit more pro-American sentiment in the public opinion. But politicians, Government officials are still very much cautious in handling this politically sensitive issue. That's the observation I have. 
Personally, I believe Korea can no longer uh, stay on the ambiguous position. I believe Korea should choose its own coordinates and directions. I'm not arguing that Korea should take side with U.S. or China. I'm arguing for taking our own position and directions. When we are considering this decision, we have to consider first thing, that the uh, simple fact that the United States is our ally and China is a partner that falls short of an ally. Another consideration we have to have is the value issue. The United States is much closer to us than China in terms of value. So figuratively speaking, if the U.S. tries to pull us in the direction of uh, three o'clock, while China is trying to pull us in the direction of nine o'clock. I would say that Korea should choose a policy direction which is closer to the United States, but not too far from China. That means one o'clock or 1.30. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should choose either United States or China, but we'd rather choose coordinates and direction of Korea. This work will give Korea's policy a consistency and predictability, thus stabilizing Seoul's relationship with Washington and Beijing at the same time. And this work will also give Seoul a persuasive power when Seoul tries to talk to the United States on North Korea-related issues. That's my my view. I'm promoting this perspective either in the form of uh, op-ed contribution or or, uh, lectures and speeches. Well, I want to read your op-ed, so please tell us when you release it and we can publicize it with the podcast. You said earlier that Korea had not taken sides in this U.S.-China competition. And it's it's interesting to hear the way that these issues are framed. I frequently, with Japan, also see it framed as, what should Japan's role be in this U.S.-China competition? And I know that the Americans have long been trying to frame it in a, a very different way where they don't see it as a U.S.-China competition. They see it as a competition or as a crisis between systems, between, again, this this idea of authoritarian and democratic values. They see it as a much broader drama that involves all countries. And again, if it's a democracy that cares about human rights and, and cares about Uh, free trade, freedom of navigation, and so on, then the United States feels that that sort of country would want to be involved and would would care about the outcome of the competition. So so again, it's Washington frames this in a, a much broader sense where the United States is just one of many countries that could react and, you know, in Washington's view, should react. So it's the idea of rules-based order or a liberal international order or, you know, the free and open Indo-Pacific, right? So there's all these different ways of, of framing this in a much broader sense. But then that gets to the question of many people might push back and say, well, 
you know, the United States is not necessarily always acting in the interests of democracy, the, you know, maybe it's, it's foreign policy is more motivated by its own desire to preserve leadership. Maybe the U.S. also betrays these democratic values in its foreign policy and domestic policy even. So people might push back and say, this is just power politics. So we're, we're talking about China being a bossy great power in charge, trying to push its agenda on everyone versus the same for the United States. So do you see that a China-led order would be significantly different from the, the order that the U.S. and its partners have created over the years? Of course, I see, uh, just like you uh, described, Korea, uh, liberal democracy and market economy uh, were introduced to Korea in the early part of the 20th century. And Korea became very successful in both values. Korean market economy showed miraculous growth in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And eventually, Korean political development was also very impressive in the history of Asian continent. So in that sense, we share basic values and principles with the United States and other Western countries. That experience which we had during the last roughly 100 years is unique in the history of Korea because during the last 100 years, it's the only period when Korean people lived outside the orbit of China. Before that, we have been living with China and Chinese culture, Chinese power for about 5,000 years. During the last 100 years, we achieved a lot. That's probably most remarkable historical achievement Korean people made. And that achievement was based on liberal democracy and market economy. And that value is shared by Korea and the United States and other countries. In that sense, value is very important. Deliberately play the role of devil's advocate ambassador mm -hmm. on this issue of values, because you rightly highlight Korea's tremendous success, mm -hmm. both in terms of economic development and as a model of a functioning open society with its liberal democratic achievements. And one thinks back to the candlelit processions near Kwangwamun from a few years ago, the sign of popular engagement with politics. And one of the things that makes Korea stand out, as people have so often said, is that it's a country that is very confident about its ability to highlight these achievements. And it's often said that as a middle power, South Korea punches above its weight I mean, admittedly, the fourth largest economy in the region, by some measures, the 12th largest economy in the world, but compared to some of the other bigger powers, still relatively smaller, and yet politically very confident. But how much of that confidence when it comes to foreign policy is still filtered through the lens of the national interest, as opposed to wider global interests? So if we look at some of these questions of values, a lot of debate now about how best to respond to the military crackdown in Myanmar, We've seen Korean companies such as POSCO Steel reassessing their involvement in Myanmar, the human rights situation in Hong Kong, the fate of Taiwan potentially, with a lot of talk about potential Chinese action against Taiwan. On those issues that go beyond the immediate focus of Korea's national interests, do you feel that there is a 
sense of those issues having a real significance for Korean decision makers and public opinion. And linked to that, which is to go back, if you like, to the politics, you're a former ambassador, a former civil servant, in the way that foreign policy making gets made in a country where we have one-term presidencies, in which there's often this very strong partisan divide between the governing and the opposition parties. So how do you go beyond national interests to embrace universal interests? Will we see South Korea joining the Quad or similar larger initiatives? And this question of structural constraints, your thoughts on those two issues? I'll have to admit that Korean diplomacy is yet to live up to the level of economic development. And in an economic sense, we are 12th largest power. But um, I wouldn't argue that the Korean diplomacy is within the range of 12 best in the world. And particularly in terms of value diplomacy is concerned, uh, Korea is not lagging behind. I think that's the current and future task of Korean diplomacy. We have been through uh, authoritarian rule during the last uh, several decades, Korea has become a fully democratic country 20 years ago. So the value we achieved has not yet reflected in our foreign policy or diplomacy. That's true. That's the task we have to handle from now on. Because of this time lag, rapid economic development and chasing leveling up of foreign policy, is feature we have now with us. I'd like to follow up on the idea of South Korea partnering with the United States, with other allies and partners who are interested in upholding their values in Asia that they see as, as perhaps under threat, being challenged from China. So this would involve more partnership with Japan, which has been very clear in terms of its, its posture, again, given Japan's perception of a security threat from China to its territory, the, the islands that it refers to as the Senkaku Islands. The Japanese have been quite worried about China's military rise and greater assertiveness. So this is, this is one issue, and John alluded to this before, in terms of perhaps a, a South Korean role in the Quad that brings us to the issue of cooperation between South Korea and Japan, which, of course, the Americans and, and others have long been urging for, but our, our dreams have not quite been achieved. The, the most recent tensions that, that we've seen between South Korea and Japan have been over this verdict in a court case about forced labor victims. And so there, there was a ruling against Japanese companies that, that relied on forced laborers during the war. And the companies were, were ordered to pay damages. The Japanese side, of course, said that because of the normalization treaty, they did not have to pay any damages because the normalization treaty way back in 1965 had put an end to any sort of uh, wartime claims such as those. So we're getting at this institution that has really been the, the rule of law between Japan and South Korea in terms of ordering these different claims that, again, there are many, many grievances, so many abuses uh, by the Japanese imperial forces, by the Japanese occupation forces against Koreans. 
that that treaty has essentially said that there are no further reparations that Japan owes. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing from you the broader question of how you see South Korean cooperation with Japan, and also on this specific issue of the forced labor case, how do you see this working its way out? International environment surrounding Korea and Japan require us to work together, despite uh, some issues rising from the history. Uh, that's the mandatory cause, but reality is very complicated. Uh, we have history-related issue, uh, legal issue, political, even public sentimental issue. Very difficult to solve. Talking about the uh, issue of forced labor, it is a matter that Korea is expected to exercise more flexibility than Japan because that was entangled by the domestic court decision in Korea. However, it may be difficult for the government to exercise more flexibility because of political sensitivity or because government has taken certain position for years. So one way out, which I suggested several months ago, was to form a bipartisan civilian blue ribbon committee. And um, the government can give commission to the committee to work out certain acceptable solutions. And we have another issue like comfort women. Comfort woman issue is a serious human rights violation. I think it is morally and historically wrong to argue that the issue could be irreversibly resolved by the government consultations between the two nations. The issue is grave human rights violations. It cannot be resolved by the stroke of a pen. So I expect over this issue that Japan would be more flexible and would be more sincere. If both sides would take more flexible posture depending upon the issues, and if both sides are committed to committed not to allow the past disputes and issues hinder the current and future cooperations, we can find some some way out. Having said that, I'm not sure that the current government can do the job within the remaining period. I'm rather skeptical. I think the issue will move on to the next administration. Point about flexibility kind of reminds me who we haven't talked about yet, which is in a sense the the elephant in the room when we talk about career at a crossroads, and particularly in light of your own experience as your country's representative to the six party talks, we haven't said much about North Korea. We are looking at a situation at the moment where North Korea seems to be increasingly turning inwards in the face of a whole series of challenges, COVID-19, the impact of economic sanctions, the impact in turn that's had on the economy. There have been reports from South Korean intelligence sources of testimony from defectors highlighting famine in parts of North Korea. And Kim Jong-un, in his public statement, seems to be uh, re-emphasizing the importance of doubling down on self-reliance. And at the same time, we have, of course, 
had the Biden administration reassessing its whole policy towards the DPRK. From your point of view, what are the best ways forward for South Korea in terms of dealing with the challenge of North Korea? President Moon spent so much time and political capital embracing a policy of engagement. What can South Korea do, particularly over the course of the next few months, given that the administration is coming to an end? Can it still be a catalyst for improved diplomacy with North Korea, do you think? It won't be an easy job. However, we should not give up the effort to revive the diplomatic channel. I think um, my government is working hard to make it happen between Washington and Pyongyang and between Seoul and Pyongyang. It won't be easy, but the task before us is how to restore the broken, suspended uh, dialogue channel. And on top of that, we have to prevent North Korea from making uh, further provocations. It seems to me that uh, North Koreans are considering some kind of provocations, not in a distant future. So how to avoid this thing from happening and how to bring North Korea to the table is the huge task. The first thing along this pathway is to talk to Washington. Uh, because North Korea believes Washington is a major counterpart. And North Korea believes Washington has some cars. So the productive dialogue between Seoul and Washington and coordination between Seoul and Washington is an important issue. Having said that, uh, Washington people is uh, busy on China issue and other issues and, and domestic issue as well. So one way of increasing our persuasive power is to consider some of the Washington's concern, which is concern over China. So my suggestion is that uh, first thing Korea should do is to work out the uh, proper China policy. And based on that, we can talk to Washington over North Korean issue. I'm not arguing that that approach would be a surefire. I, I don't believe so. But that seems to be the most proper policy options we can choose. Ambassador, thank you very much. I mean, circling back to China, as you neatly did, is, is probably a good point at which we can end this really fascinating discussion. We've covered a lot of ground. We could have gone on, I'm sure, much longer, but I wanted to thank you and I wanted to thank Jennifer for what has really been a fascinating discussion. It's a reminder also of how important diplomatic experiences and your own example, I think, demonstrates very powerfully why, whilst South Korea is in this very kind of pivotal position at the crossroads of all of these intersecting issues, it's often very difficult in sometimes a rather charged political environment for Korea to be able to both articulate its own interests and at the same time have perhaps the impact that is so necessary in moving some of these issues forward. But I want to, again, thank you for what's been a fascinating discussion. And I hope we'll have a chance to talk again in the not too distant future. But thank you, Ambassador Wee, and thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, John, and thank you, Jennifer. It's my uh, great honor and pleasure to be on the interview. I agree with you that the situation Korea is facing now is really tough. The rivalry between um, Washington and Beijing is in, in the high point, and the confrontation between Washington and Moscow is also at the high point. And 
dialogue with North Korea has been suspended. Uh, Seoul-Tokyo relationship is hardened. In many ways, Korean diplomacy is at the crossroad. So at this important juncture, uh, this occasion and this discussion is timely and pretty much useful for me. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this bonus episode of Undercurrents. There are three more episodes coming up in this series, and then we'll be back with our regular programming very soon. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with the work of Chatham House on our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Chatham House. Till next time, thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.